Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Hala Corey, uh, who is the author of today's book, for Peace from Anxiety. Um, Hala is an author, of course, and also a co-founder of an organization called Off the Mat, Into the World, which hopefully we'll get into, and a practicing psychologist. Welcome, Hala. Welcome to the Anxiety Book Club. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Totally. So do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction of how you came to have an interest in anxiety and, and what you've been doing with it for the past few years? Absolutely. Um, so my background is I'm a, I'm a clinician um, with a specialty in trauma. I'm also a yoga teacher. And I've always, I think, struggled with anxiety in my own way, although I wouldn't have identified as somebody who had anxiety until later on in life. And, um, you know, the book was really an expression of my last 20 years of work in, in private practice, doing one-on-one -on -one work with folks struggling with anxiety and trauma and depression, as well as leading trainings and workshops. Um, a lot of my work has been in yoga. And what I found is a lot of people come to yoga because they feel anxious, um, but not all yoga classes are actually addressing their anxiety. Um, and so I really developed a particular way to work with people in an embodied way that helped them deal with anxiety and manage it. And so, you know, this is obviously something I've struggled with in my life. Um, and so it feels very personal as well. And so much of the tools and information that I got in my own journey, I wish someone had given to me when I was younger or had offered them to me in a more accessible way. And so this really is my way of trying to make the work that saved me more accessible to a broader audience. Sure. Well, we definitely thank you for paying it forward and uh, returning the favor here because it's a tremendous book. And I'm, I'm really curious about how exactly your brand of yoga targets anxiety and, and what might be different about it than just so say your average sort of uh, class you might find online in your local town. You know, my training is in a technique called somatic experiencing. And somatic experiencing is a body-based therapy that addresses trauma and trauma symptoms. Now, not all anxiety is a product of unresolved trauma. There's lots of different reasons we get anxious, but from a nervous system perspective, it's kind of the same. So after my clinical training and my training in somatic experiencing, it, it impacted how I teach yoga. You know, when I was trained to teach yoga, it was a big focus on form and on breath. And it was honestly like, as a person who was already kind of anxious it helped me with anxiety, my anxiety sometimes, but sometimes it just kind of maintained my level of neuroticism, so to speak, because I didn't really know how to do yoga in a way that wasn't perfectionistic. Mm. Uh, and so I was like bringing all my issues to yoga. And I, in the beginning, I didn't have teachers that were inviting me to challenge that or giving me tools on how to challenge that. So for me, I teach yoga with the intention to help people get self-regulated. So self-regulation in the paradigm that I work with is the goal. You know, when we're self-regulated, we feel grounded, we feel centered, we're in present time. We are not anxious, right? Anxiety is a form of dysregulation. And Yoga that's just focused on your muscles and your bones and stretching is great. It can help with back pain and physical injuries. But when we actually teach people how to regulate their nervous systems, in my opinion, that's the most empowering thing we can do, especially for people who struggle with anxiety. 
because the worst part of anxiety for so many of us is this feeling of being out of control with our emotions. And I think that I try to teach, whether it's yoga or just these simple practices, it's all about feeling like we have a little bit of an understanding of what's happening inside of us so we can manage it or control it in a healthy way. Totally. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly resonates what you were talking about, bringing your neuroticism to yoga. I know that for my own perfectionistic tendencies, I definitely can attribute some of my success in being a daily meditator to being sort of obsessive about it and uh, not wanting to miss a day for fear of some catastrophic mistake I might make. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I don't prepare my brain you know, perfectly at the beginning of every morning. Right, right. Yeah, we can bring that stuff to all of our practices. Totally. Um, So what are some of the simple practices or some of the other wisdom um, outside of yoga in the book that you advise, you know, people to adopt in their their lives? Because there's a lot of different tools in the book, right? It's not just yoga or it's not just meditation or it's not just counseling. It's about community and sort of... um, kind of a holistic kind of life practice in general. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the book has really, I think about it in three parts, right? There's the part that's about understanding your own body, right? So the the the, the mechanics, the psychology, the physiology of our own nervous system, so that when we feel like our heart is racing out of control or we can't breathe or the room is spinning, we can understand what's happening on a brain level, on a nervous system level, and use specific tools like getting grounded, like orienting into the space. You know, there's all these body-based tools we can use to help our nervous system downshift. Um, And I can share some of those with you in a moment if you want. But I don't stop there because I think a lot of self-help books or books on anxiety really just focus on that. They focus on the individual. And I think a lot of us are anxious because we don't feel supported. We feel disconnected. We're lonely especially in this time of COVID when there's so much more isolation for folks and less, less opportunities to, to connect. I think that, you know, we can do all the meditation and breath work in the world, but if we don't feel like we belong, if we don't feel connected to other people, that's going to be a really big missing piece. And so there's a whole section in the book that's about relationships and not just our close friendships. You know, sometimes the more peripheral, peripheral relationships, like making contact with like the checkout person at the grocery store or the person who's delivering your mail, like the people that we don't have a close relationship with, but walking through the world or moving through the world in a way that acknowledges other humans and allows us to connect can be a source of feeling like the world is a, is a, is a place where there's support and kindness especially with so much division, you know, these days that we see online and in social media, making sure that we're looking in our own communities for opportunities to connect can be such a major buffer against anxiety, especially anxiety that is about feeling overwhelmed. And the third part is about finding our purpose, finding, thinking about the well-being of others, um, Sometimes, you know, I've worked with folks who struggle with anxiety so much and they only start to break it when they actually start to extend themselves to support other people. One thing, one thing I find, and I know this is true for me, is that, you know, highly anxious people or highly unhappy people, we get hyper-focused on ourselves. 
And that makes sense because we're having a really unpleasant experience and we want to change it. But that hyper-focus can sometimes make it worse. And actually extending ourselves to others can sometimes really help. Totally. Yeah. And I really appreciate your perspective. I, I think also, given my own history with anxiety and, and sort of skepticism, this book comes to the podcast and I think it's to my library at the right time because I'm much more open to some of these ideas that exist outside of our own personal development and are more about like community support or, or purpose. I think in some ways they feel somewhat like they're intangibles, um, but that might just be me being unfamiliar with the research. I wonder if there are, and I'm not saying the only way that we need to arrive at truth is from things published in scientific journals, but I wonder if there are any trials or studies where they take people who are supported versus those who aren't supported, uh, who live alone, who don't live alone, and sort of try to quantify like levels of anxiety or um, mm-hmm. Or, or maybe I'm asking for too much. What are your thoughts about that? No, not at all. A lot of this is backed by research. You know, the book I referenced, the work of Kelly McGonigal, um, who's a researcher at Stanford, and she's a stress researcher. And apologies, I live near a small airport, so planes are going by. Okay. Um, and, you know, she talks a lot about the importance of connection. And in fact, a lot of the data shows that the people that are faring the best with their mental health are people that have community support, whether it's their church or their local, you know, local communities that actually that that's, that's, that's the differentiator. When people feel connected, they are buffered against the, the negative impacts of overwhelm and trauma. And I, I lump anxiety into that. Um, there's also, um, an addiction researcher, um, I believe his name is Hari is his last name. And I reference him in the book and he, he talks about something that's known as the rat park experiment. They did these experiments with rats where they would isolate a rat in a cage and offer it either water or water laced in morphine. And over and over again, the rats would overdose on morphine. But if you put the rats in a community where there's other rats, there's like a little rat playground and you offer them water and morphine, they do not overdose on morphine. And the theory is that they have connection. And what this author says in his book, it's called Lost Connections, is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And so we really do know that connection is what matters. And even when we look at the early attachment research that was done on rhesus monkeys, you know, there was this theory way back when that, you know, a child, baby attaches to the parent or to the mother because of milk, right? And what they found in this research is that the child does not attach because of needing milk. It attaches because it needs connection and warmth. I won't go into the details of that right now, but it's a fascinating experiment that really challenged the thought that we are just we just need each other for survival, but we actually need each other for warmth and connection. So is that totally. convincing? <laughs> I'm convinced. I think I know the experiment you're talking about. It's um, where the monkeys attach themselves either to like a cloth mother with mm-hmm. no milk or like a really scary spiky mother that yes. does have milk. Yes. Yeah. And they would, they would grab, they would hold the cloth mother and lean over and try to get the milk from the wire mother. Right. Yeah. 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 That's so cool. Can we talk a little bit more about purpose? I guess we're not trying to say that, you know, we diminish our own suffering you know, because a lot of people will have self-talk that includes something like, and, and you might think that this is useful, 
Um, you know, I don't have it so bad, like the starving people in Africa. How, how similar is that line of thought to what you're proposing about, you know, helping others or thinking about the well-being of others? Is it, is it similar or are there some differences mm. there? Yeah, I mean, there's a difference. And I think that we can, we can take a lot of these ideas and use them to beat ourselves up, right? And so I always caution folks to make sure that they're not, they're not utilizing these ideas as another way to make themselves feel bad. Um, I never think it's useful to compare our suffering to the suffering of others because our suffering is our suffering, right? Um, and for a lot of us feeling like we can have a positive impact on the suffering of others, that we are making a difference can contribute to our well-being. But I also know people who struggle with anxiety who spend all their time caring for others, right? They put themselves last. So for some folks, they need to kind of pull in and be a little bit more centered in their own experience. So I always remind my readers, you know, take the parts of the book that are relevant to you. And certain things might be relevant at different times. But for some folks, if they're caught in this really self-obsessed, self-helpy world and it's not working, right? If you're doing the therapy, you're doing the yoga, you're doing all those things and you're still feeling that anxiety, it's really important to then look outside and see, is what I need more connection? Do I need to extend my care to others? And so I think we all have different places where we're out of balance with these things. And so everybody should take what they need. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And it, I think it also reflects the idea that there's not really like a silver bullet here. Like adding 30 minutes to your meditation in the morning is maybe not going to cure all your problems or, you know, working out one extra day a week or helping others. Like, it, you know, the, the, the sad and sort of unsatisfying truth here is that you kind of need balance in all these areas of your life, mm -hmm. I think, to thrive. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that there's this like aspirational marketing that sometimes comes in the field of self-help, like do these three things and then your anxiety will be cured, right? People want to oversimplify it. Um, and it's actually complex. It doesn't mean it's complicated, right? But it's complex. It's like, it's a little bit of everything. It's developing the self-awareness to know what do I need more of right now? What do I need less of right now? So my hope is that my readers are going to, you know, take all the information and then be, be sort of discerning about how they're going to utilize it rather than think that they have to do it all in a particular way. Everybody's different. And there's stages in life where, um, you know, I, I remember when I had my first child, I was so overwhelmed at the idea of being a mom. I was like, I don't want to hear about the suffering of anybody else. I can't, I can't think about it. And I really stopped a lot of like my volunteer work or, you know, work that I was doing because I was just confronting my own process being a parent. And I was very deliberate. I need to pull in a little bit right now. And then as my kids got a little bit older, I pulled back out, went back into extending myself into community. So we all have our different rhythm with that. Totally. Um, there's a, there's a line in the book that just sort of, um, makes clear how dramatic not having social connection be. So I'm on page 125. There's a study mm -hmm. I think you're quoting where it says one large public health study found that lacking social connection carries a risk that is comparable and in many cases exceeds that of other well-accepted risk factors, including smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day, obesity, physical inactivity, and air pollution. And I remember underlining this and writing like, wow. I mean, it seems pretty clear that 
maintaining connection to others is at least for most of us, I think. And I, I know I have some friends that need sort of less social time than Mm -hmm. I do, but it seems pretty important. Yeah, it really does. And I think you look, some people are more introverted and they might be anxious at the idea of needing to connect to a lot of people. Right. So again, we all will do it in our own way for folks who need more alone time. Those connections will be more sporadic, but it feels different to, you know, to feel like we're choosing to be alone versus we don't have a choice to be alone are very different things. Um, and for sure, feeling like you're part of a larger community, um, you know, we find in the studies about how long people live, like the people who live, the, the cent- centenarians, they're not like health food people. They're people that are deeply connected to their communities. They're the people that have a reason to stay alive. Right. They have responsibilities or friends they need to support or mm-hmm. fun that needs to be had. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how much, and I've been talking about this a lot with a friend of mine, how much harm has this sort of ethos or this myth of like rugged individualism, you know, wrought us because like you talk about in the book, there's so much mythology about how we need to be like whole and complete and like love ourselves entirely before we can like accept or give love or, you know, there's all these cowboy-esque, you know, figures both present day and also like in movies and in the media who just try really hard and accomplish things on their own. Like, yeah. Are those ideas like actively causing us harm? And I, and I, I don't know, why do they persist? And what do you think about that? I think they are. I mean, I think this is the hero's journey. You know? I mean, for, for all the ways that it can definitely inspire people and be something that folks hold on to, I feel like the side effect of this message of you've got to do it on your own, don't ask for help, don't be a burden, becomes this thing that, that impacts everybody, even the people who are like, quote unquote, making it in that paradigm, right? There's like, it's lonely. It's lonely to be that person who's doing it all by yourself. And I think that that ethos also creates a lot of shame for people. And that so many people who, if we weren't mired in this pressure to do it alone, we would reach out much sooner. You know, like when I, you know, it's interesting because I started to struggle with anxiety in my early 40s. So like well into my career, you know, well into having all these tools, but I'd never really been impacted by anxiety in the way that I I started to be in my early 40s. And when I realized like, oh my God, this is anxiety. Like it took almost a year for me to realize, okay, this is an issue, right? It's not going to go away. The first thing I did was reach out to friends and say, I'm really struggling. This is coming up. I think I just had a panic attack. And so many people I was surprised said, me too. And did you know that I'm on medication and I've had panic attacks? And, you know, outside of the people in my inner, inner circle, I was surprised that like, I didn't know they'd never shared it with me, you know? Um, And I realized so many people are suffering in silence And so many people felt relieved when I said, well, I am too, and I'm trying to figure out what to do about it. So I think that rugged individualism isolates us and it prevents us from reaching out for support. And then the other piece is that when we reach out for support, I don't think it just benefits us. I think it benefits the person we're reaching out to because it's almost like we're giving them a gift that one of the ways we foster deep connections is when we let ourselves need one another. And sometimes reaching out to get support from somebody else gives them permission to do the same thing back. 
Now, again, I know that some people are in positions in their life where they're always the person everybody reaches out to and they're drained and their work is going to be a little different. But when we allow ourselves to need each other, we start to build the foundation of authentic community. Yeah, I, I, I totally uh, am with that. And um, yeah, I wish our culture wasn't so focused on individualism. I, I think I've heard before, like, if you want to make a friend, you know, ask them to do something for you, you know, right. ask for a favor. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. You know, and also, like, I think about the friendships we have that are just about meeting for lunch and keeping things superficial, like that's so boring, you know, versus friendships where we take risks with each other. It's so much more meaningful. Totally. And I think the quality of our social connections, I, I mean, obviously varies a lot. I know that at least when I was in office and I would go to work, I would go to work all day, maybe crack a few jokes, but most of my conversations would be really just kind of work focused and not terribly um, uh, relevant to like, you know, how someone was actually doing. So that I think the quality of the kinds of connections we make and uh, meet in our day can vary a lot and, and impact our mental health sort of differently. Absolutely. You know, there's a short section in the book about the workplace and how so many people report being lonely, even though they're, they're at work eight hours a day with other people. Um, and I think that has to do with exactly what you just named. And I do a lot of work inside of organizations and support people to build, you know, what we call a culture of care where they're actually checking in. How are you doing? You know, what do you need? And they're allowing their humanity into the workplace in a way that is actually super enriching to everybody. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really valuable addition um, if we could get into more workplaces in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a, I'm kind of curious about a, a few things I'm not so familiar with. So what is somatic experiencing? Mm -hmm. So somatic experiencing is a body-based therapy that was developed by Peter Levine. And Peter Levine is a medical biophysicist who um, did all this research in graduate school and noticed that animals in the wild weren't showing signs of trauma. They weren't anxious. They weren't dissociated. You know, they didn't have all the symptoms of trauma that humans have or even that our domesticated animals have, right? If you have a rescue dog or a cat, you know, we often see that they have anxiety and trauma. And so he started to understand the way that trauma is held in the body and developed a system for helping folks discharge and release traumatic stress from the nervous system so that they can release, be released from the grasp of trauma. Um, and it's a really amazing, very subtle technique of, teaching people interoception. Interoception is our capacity to sense what's going on inside of us accurately. Um, and when we can teach people how to practice interoception and help them get grounded and use these tools for support, we can begin to allow the nervous system to unwind from traumatic events. And that's what somatic experiencing is. And it's, it's the work that I've been doing in clinical practice as well as bringing into yoga classes so that we can use the yoga postures and the physical movement as an opportunity to do some of that release and unwinding. But it's a, it's a pretty impactful and effective technique. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite intrigued. Do you think this is the right venue to describe a little bit of what that um, looks and feels like? Absolutely. Or, okay. Absolutely. I can take folks through, through, through a really brief resourcing practice. So um, so for whoever's listening, I'm going to invite you to first right now, I want you to look around the space that you're in. Um, 
and take in the colors and textures that you see, not things you want to clean up or organize, right? Not things that would bring you stress. Colors, textures. And I want you to actually move your head when you're doing that. And just track your bodies. Usually about 50% of people will take a deep breath and they will settle just a little bit by doing this. Not everybody, but half of you will. You can also orient with your other senses like your, your ears or your smell, right? This is about getting yourself oriented in present time. This is something that often works with people in the middle of a panic attack. If I can take somebody in a panic attack and say, look around and, and, and name four blue things in the room. So for your readers who have panic attacks or listeners, sorry, you can try this as well if you start to feel panicky. Orient to your, to your space. And then the second yeah. thing, how oh, did that feel ahead. for you? Yeah. I, I was one of the 50% because I took a, a big breath and I don't, I didn't know where it came from, but it, ah. it definitely made me feel better. Good. And that's the, you know, the involuntary response, right? That's so much more powerful than me saying to you, now take a deep breath, right? Sometimes that's really useful. But when we can actually get that spontaneous deep breath, it tells us that the nervous system is settling just a little bit. Well, good. I'm glad that you are included in the 50% that this works for. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I know it's not a hack. It feels a little bit like a hack. What is going on in our bodies when all of a sudden we take a deep breath? Have we like given it permission to realize that there's no threat here? Or Yeah, I think that's part of it is when we orient and like the lower part, the, the reptilian brain that might be you know, prime thinking there's, there's a threat, right? When you look around, there's this settling of like, actually, there's no threat in the space, right? Um, there's also something about the movement of the upper, the, the cervical vertebrae, the, the axis and the atlas, that when they turn and move, when there is that mobility in the neck, that also can settle the nervous system. The muscles in the neck you know, so many of us get tension in our necks, right? And it can be connected on a very primitive level to hypervigilance, right? Like if you're out in the woods and you think that there's like a lion around, you're going to be checking every nook and cranny, right, for that danger. And that can get caught up in the neck. So we can interrupt some of those patterns of hypervigilance when we slowly look around, when we take in things in the room, and there's no threat. Obviously, if there's a threat in the room, you're going to get a very different res response with this exercise. Totally, totally. I think I've, I've come across something similar. Uh, Might have been in uh, one of Judson Brewer's books about anxiety. Um, how do we, how do we take something like this and and turn it into a habit? Do you have any pointers on that? Absolutely. I mean, my hope is that all of these tools become habits that we do all the time. You know, my personal one is grounding, and you know, folks can try this right now. Right? You can. Pay attention to your feet on the floor or your butt in the chair or even your back against your seat. You know, grounding is about finding something that feels solid in the body. And again, I'll say that a certain percentage of you, when you bring your attention to where there is support, you might feel that settling, that spontaneous breath, similar to the orienting response. And so things like that, you can do all the time, right? I can be in a meeting and I just focus on my feet on the floor for a moment or my butt in the chair, right? If I feel myself 
getting activated or I feel my anxiety coming up. Um, This was a big one for me when I was feeling anxious was staying grounded while I felt the anxiety because our anxiety isn't going to just spontaneously go away necessarily. But when we can use some of these tools, we can start to feel less overwhelmed by it. And that's a pretty powerful shift. I know for myself that, you know, the anxiety could get so overwhelming. I just, I felt like I was going to pass out. And when I could use my tools, it's like, all right, yep, the anxiety's there, but, but I'm okay. I can handle it. And so tools like grounding, tools like taking a deep breath or orienting, you can literally do anywhere, right? Um, and what they do is they repattern our brain, our nervous system, so that we're not wired just to look for cues of anxiety. We are wired to also look for cues of support, safety, or evidence that we're actually okay. And that's such a big piece of rewiring anxiety is shifting our hypervigilance for cues that we're not okay to also noticing cues that maybe we are okay at the same time. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So instead of sort of just defaulting to our negative uh, bias or our sort of alertive bias, um, you know, focusing on things that are working or maybe mm-hmm. even things we're grateful for. Exactly. And then, you know, for a lot of folks, what happens is we're not anxious, but we're afraid we're going to get anxious. And then that makes us anxious, right? It's this like, this spiral that we get into. And so we can't think our way out of it. Right. And I, and I know a lot of folks have tried this, like, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm okay. But that almost for some people makes it worse because you're, when your body is like, I'm not okay. And then your mind is like, but you're okay. Right. When the, when the, the body is not getting the memo, the positive talk can be really limited. That's where the somatic tools come in. You know, I do this a lot with my kids, you know, when they're nervous about like their first day of school or a a monster under their bed, right? I sit with them and I, you know, I ask them where they feel it in their body. And instead of saying to them, but there's no monster, you shouldn't be scared. Like that's not really useful. They kind of know there's no monster under the bed, right? So I ask them, what do you feel? What in your body feels okay? And then I help them connect to something in their body that is settling and resourcing and then they settle and then their mind is less focused on monsters. Mm, yeah, I really like that. And I hadn't heard that before because normally you're asking like, where do you feel the pain or the anxiety um, instead of like, where does it feel fine? Yes, exactly. I mean, look, we know where we feel the anxiety usually, right? We want to start with what's doing okay. I mean, we do want to name to ourselves, oh, I feel it in my chest. Like we, we want to know how we feel the anxiety in our body. But more importantly, we want to know where we feel supported or settled or okay in our body. That's going to help us a lot more. Right. Like what's going right right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there's a part in the book uh, still on the subject of sort of isolation that I thought was really interesting. And I've thought about it a little bit. And it's that, uh, well, the quote here on page 133 is that isolation due to convenience is an affliction impacting more affluent communities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just thinking of people who can afford to drive, you know, instead of taking the bus, yeah. um, they might have fewer um, instances in their commute where they're late or mm-hmm. um, maybe they won't get as sweaty or things like that. But it's 
first of all, it might just be more boring. And second of all, like it's hard to make friends when you're in your car alone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, there is such an isolation that comes, that can come with certain privileges and your life might be so convenient. You know, you can order your food. Well, then you're not going to go and get to know the, like the person at the restaurant, right. Or bump into a friend on the way out or get to know your neighbor because you're leaving your house. Right. Um, there is such an isolation. And, and, and I think about it too, as you know, somebody with kids, you know, how when I've been in phases where I can afford childcare, I'll pay someone to watch my kids because I don't want to inconvenience my friends, right? And then there's phases in my life where that's not been affordable and I have to risk asking for help. But then that builds such rich experiences. You know, my kids are getting to know other adults and other kids. You know, we're having these spontaneous interactions and it, it, it feels more warm and fuzzy, actually. Yeah, so really, what's all this money for? Exactly. So we can just be isolated and not need anybody and have a lot of pretty things. I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, you know, it's books and thoughts like these that are really making us question the system. Absolutely. You know, and the system so wants to reinforce itself on us, right? And sell us this idea that happiness is about, you know, money, thinness, perfection, whatever all those things are. But, you know, I think that that's really, really harmful. Those are like, you know, what I call simulations of happiness. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely some mythology in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. We can only untangle ourselves from a lifetime of messages about these things. Maybe we'll somehow see the truth. Exactly. Um, I know that there's parts of the book that are about justice, and I think that might be related to your organization um, Mm -hmm. off the mat. Do Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, as somebody who's developed so much of my work, working with system-involved youth and, and incarcerated people, I think a lot about the role of oppression and injustice in people's well-being and mental and emotional and physical health. So I always include a conversation about that when I'm talking about well-being because, A, you know, there's going to be readers in my book that have had to deal with the trauma of being marginalized or living in a body that's targeted by the world or having a mind that doesn't work how other minds work. And that's overwhelming. And it can be a really legitimate cause of anxiety. You know, that anxiety might not be, you know, due to personal or even interpersonal situations, but these larger systemic issues. And then I think that there's people who really benefit from these systems. And I include myself in that who, you know, we don't have to really think about the suffering of others in a particular way. We can be buffered from it. But we're somehow in in many ways also complicit in that suffering. You know, we're not aware of the ways that some of our privileges and advantages come on the backs of others. And I think that impacts people's well-being, you know, and 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 there's a certain level of denial people have to maintain to enjoy their privilege. Um, you know, knowing subconsciously that there's a world of people out there who are suffering. And so you know, I, I think about this idea of beloved community, which, you know, I first heard from uh, Martin Luther King talking about a community where everybody cares for one another. And to me, that's what justice is about. Um, Cornell West says that justice is what love looks like in public. And so I don't think we can have a conversation about well-being without talking about justice and thinking about our own role in contributing to a world where everybody's cared for and everybody can be well. Mm. Yeah. 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 I'm definitely, uh, intrigued by that line of thought. And I I will admit that, um, 
you know, in my own pursuit of, um, you know, healing and, and care for myself, I've definitely put most of those concerns, um, you know, on the to-do list for a much later date. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being in a weekend uh, online retreat where a lot of the focus was on um, justice in mm-hmm. the world. And I was sitting there sort of impatient and frustrated thinking like justice, like I just want to get rid of this anxiety. Like I'm not, I'm not concerned at the, in this yeah. moment about other people. Like I'm trying to work on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I will say, at least for me, I'm still trying to figure out how that, that puzzle piece um, sort of fits into like my, my overall journey. Yeah. And I think it's a really important question, right? Because there's times where we don't have the capacity to think beyond our own well-being, right? But I think it's important to challenge that because sometimes shifting that allows us to feel better, right? It's just, again, like that idea of extending ourselves out to support other people sometimes helps to chip away at our anxiety. If part of the root cause of our anxiety is this sort of existential feeling of belonging or meaning or purpose. And so I, I, I caution people against getting overwhelmed by this idea of like, oh my God, now I have to go fix the world, you know, but I'm so overwhelmed by like my own <laughs> personal to-do list, right? I think for everybody, it's it's a balance and we have to see where we have capacity and maybe once in a while, even challenge it a little bit and test it out and, you know, see what it feels like, for example, to like learn more about a particular issue and go out and vote on it, right? Or go to a local city council meeting, like test out the waters because you might be pleasantly surprised and go, oh, actually that did make me feel better because I felt like I could do something. Yeah. 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 I feel that it's pretty easy to get really mired um, Mm -hmm. in our own stuff and not to diminish it, but there's a whole world out there that maybe needs our care and, and support. Yeah. Um, and we could, you know, icing on the cake is we might feel better as we do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I wonder if there's anything important uh, from the text of the book that we haven't discussed that you'd like to highlight. Hmm. You know, there's one piece, there's a chapter in the book on connecting to something bigger. Um, and I mean it in more of a esoteric mythical way. And, you know, as somebody who would identify as a spiritual atheist, you know, this is not for me about religion necessarily, for some people, it is about religion, but you know, I, I know my own process. Feeling like I could connect to the mystery of life, you know, for me, it's nature, um, and I'm not like a huge nature person. Like, literally, could be sitting at like the dog park across the street of my house, right? But this idea that we need something bigger than us to hold us, and sometimes it's community and other people, and sometimes it's something a little bit more mysterious or ineffable. Um, And I suggest to folks that they think about ways to foster that connection, whether it's through meditation, reading inspirational passages and books, spending time in nature, even the simple act of like lighting a candle and sitting in front of it for five minutes a day, that cultivating a connection to something bigger than us can sometimes allow us to tap into being held so that the anxiety feels like it's you know, it's not just in, in us to manage, but it's held by this larger container. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that, you know, there's a lot of writer, there's a field called eco-psychology that, that really investigates our relationship to nature and says that a lot of our pain is a result of our disconnection 
from the larger natural world, that we are being asked to hold our pain alone or just with a few loved ones. And so I think that that's a really important one for folks to think about who are you know, living with anxiety is, you know, what are you doing to just feel like you're connected to this bigger mysterious thing? And for me, sometimes that allows me to make meaning of suffering um, in a way that's really helpful. You know, so much of my anxiety when it was really peaking had to do with like my own mortality and, you know, my children. And what if I were to die or what if something really bad happens to them? And when I could step back and look at life a little bit more symbolically, I could tap into sort of trusting, well, maybe there's some larger flow or, you know, whatever happens, you know, maybe they'll be able to like build resilience as a result. Or maybe I have no idea why things happen, but I can trust that there's something bigger that's just holding all of my experiences. And so I invite folks to think about in their own way, whatever feels meaningful to them to do that. Yeah, I'm really glad uh, you answered that question the way that you did. Um, I think it's really intriguing. And as as an atheist myself, I'm really intrigued by this phrase, uh, spiritual atheist. And I also think that you've highlighted something important, uh, and maybe an important deficit I think in my life and maybe in other people's lives who don't have a strong belief in the supernatural and as a result of it have lost have lost connection to I don't want to call it spookiness but something like love or mm-hmm. something like nature something big and mm-hmm. um sort of uh you know kind of like all encompassing I also think at least yeah. for me having this ethos is like this hard-nosed materialistic skeptic all almost makes it so that it's like outside of it's not even permissible you know to yeah. delve into the worlds of things that are not you know evidence-based or like supported mm-hmm. by randomized clinical tri- controlled trials um because mm-hmm. it like go, it's like off brand or something like that totally. so I, I, <laughs> I think you've definitely touched on something that certainly resonates with me yeah. I mean, and I, and I get it. Cause I, I became that person. Cause I used to be miss magical thinking. Everything happens for a reason, like super like airy fairy, because I didn't want to, it was one of the ways I dealt with my anxiety was denying that it even existed with all these, you know, magical thinking beliefs. And so when I threw that all out, like it was really good, but then my anxiety got even worse because I was like, Oh my God, there's nothing now. It's just me (laughs) and my suffering. Um, I missed my magical beliefs. Um, and I found that there was a way to bring back to me, the word symbolic really helps because it doesn't mean it's literally true, right? I don't literally believe that everything happens for a reason, but I can create some sort of meaning out of my suffering to turn it into something useful, right? Like I'm deciding to make it useful. I'm not deciding it happened for some mystical reason, but I'm making meaning out of it. And that can feel really magical, even though it's not literally magical. So that helps me (laughs) embrace that. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, if this is chapter eight, I think you're talking about. I'm definitely going to give this a reread. Yeah. Because um, it sounds really inspiring. Yeah, I think you'd enjoy it. Wow, cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a couple more questions for you. One one is, what do you think, uh, what, what's a book that inspired you that you think um, maybe members of the Anxiety Book Club community mm-hmm. might be interested in reading? And then the final question is is about, you know, where people can find you, what you're working on, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Great. You know, the book that really 
inspired me when I was struggling with my anxiety was the book of joy. And it's a book that is by um, the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And it's all these interviews with them about life and joy. And, you know, if these two men who've like seen their people go through genocide, you know, who've been through so much trauma can still be light and joyful, I figure if they can do it, anybody can do it. And that book, that book helped me frame my suffering in a way where I could include it and still leave room for joy. So the book of joy. Um, and then in terms of where to find me, you know, one of the things I built, I mean, I was building this before COVID hit is an online support community for folks and it's called radical well-being. And that would be the thing I think I would plug to your readers, the book for sure by the book, but, um, you know, the online support, you know, is just a way where, and it's not a huge community, which is kind of nice because people get into small groups with each other. I send people content every month, short talks, short somatic practices and short yoga practices. And we do these live calls and we've since created some affinity groups for people to connect. So that to me is a way that it's been a lifeline for a lot of folks, especially people that are, you know, living with anxiety. But I also have activists on that on and teachers as well. But you can find me all on my website, halakori.com, H-A-L-A-K-H-O-U-R-I.com. And I have classes and books and DVDs and tons of yoga stuff on there too. Totally. And um, yeah, I didn't say this at the outset, but I've really noticed it as we've been chatting. You really have a wonderful voice. Um, it's very soothing. It's very clear. And I think, yeah, you should do more audio stuff. Thank you. I know. And I'm, I'm sad I did not do the audio for my book because it was going to be too complicated. And even though the woman who did it is wonderful, so many of my students are like, oh, I wish you were doing the audio. And I told my publisher, I said, I've been told I have a really good voice. You should, you should have me do the audio, but thank you. And I do, you know, that's why I record a lot of stuff because I, I want to sort of share my own tools with other people. And I know part of that is also the way that I present can be really supportive to folks who might be overwhelmed. Totally. Totally. Well, thanks so much, Hala. This has really been a pleasure um, chatting with you today. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for your contribution to the world and and this book. And, uh, for figuring out some of your own sort of anxiety issues and then letting the rest of us know how you solve them. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me, Joshua. It's it's really an honor to be here. And, and I hope folks can get something from the book that supports them. That would mean so much to me.